We're particularly thankful today for George Atwell, who, if you look in your program, you won't see his name there because we were expecting that uh, Will would be here, but uh, just yesterday, Evan was telling me a second ago, he called and I guess Will's come down with the flu. So George stepped in at the very last second and uh, has done a wonderful job for us today. So appreciate him doing that. Indeed, he's not here to appreciate it, but there we go. <laughs> we'll tell him later that we thought that was good. All right. So it was pretty, pretty sweet to see the youngest of the adventurers taking up the offering there, wasn't it? Yeah, that was a good job. And by the way, it's fall in Florida. Maybe you didn't notice because it's <clears throat> a little hard to tell because it doesn't really get cooler and the trees don't really change much. But there is one way you can always tell when it's fall in Florida. And because uh, right around this time of year, the ferns in the front of the sanctuary miraculously begin to change colors. Uh, the way we do that is we cool the sanctuary down to about 35 degrees for the entire week. And that's not really true there. But thanks to Jan Chesney, who keeps us in tune with the season. The fact that we do these things up here and appreciate them just makes the point that most people that live in Florida came from somewhere else, because this is what fall looks like where they came from. So, uh, but yes, yeah, beautiful and the, the flowers and everything, we appreciate the hard work she does for us each time. All right. Okay, let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray now that your spirit will be with us, that you will teach us, that we will understand. Lord, today is about having the right attitude towards you and towards this world that you've made. Help us, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. So we began our consideration of Daniel chapter 7 last Sabbath, and we'll pick that topic up again next Sabbath. But if you'll recall, Daniel chapter 7 begins with these words. Verse 1, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions passed through his mind as he was lying in bed. Today I want to talk to you a little bit about Belshazzar and the end of the Babylonian Empire. Now, there's a couple points I want you to get here. The first is that the Neo-Babylonian Empire actually didn't last that long. Now, why do I say Neo-Babylonian Empire? Well, that's how historians describe the empire that Nebuchadnezzar built up and reigned over because it actually was the new Babylonian Empire. There was a previous Babylonian Empire. That was the one that Hammurabi ruled over. He's the one that's famous for Hammurabi's Code, which was one of the earliest laws ever laid down, written down. But this Neo-Babylonian Empire actually came later on. And an interesting thing about it, for all of its amazing power and strength in the days of Nebuchadnezzar, it actually didn't last all that long. In fact, only about 87 years from the time of Nebuchadnezzar's father to the time that the empire would collapse. And of those 87 years, Nebuchadnezzar was king for 43 of them, so, so roughly half. The second thing, as we're considering Belshazzar here, Belshazzar the king in Babylon at the time of its fall was apparently not as popular with God as Nebuchadnezzar was. You know, we've, we've wrestled with this as we've gone along because there's all this language in there where why in the world does God seem to like this pagan king so much? 
This particular pagan king that, that destroyed the people of Israel and burned the temple, yet God really seemed to like him. Well, as you read about Belshazzar, it seems pretty clear God didn't seem to like him quite so much. And it is after comments like this that we start feeling a little uncomfortable, right? And start saying things like, well, that can't be true. God loves us all the same, right? Well, while I suppose that's true enough and very satisfactory to our Adventist Arminian theological traditions, let me speak a few words of caution here. Let's be careful with our arrogance anytime we start unequivocally stating what God can and what God can't do, who God can choose and for what purpose. Remember, the passage when you read about the plagues in Egypt, it says, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. You know how we always kind of want to blow by that really fast and blame Pharaoh? Here's the point I want to make with this. There are dangers in every theological position we would embrace, whether we do it consciously or unconsciously. And, and when I say that, realize the statement, I don't worry about theology, I just try to love Jesus. That's a theological statement. You cannot escape it. There are many truths that are indeed true, yet if taken to the extreme or to the exclusion of other things, those truths themselves will destroy your faith in the end. This is why I recommend for you and for me that we always maintain an attitude of humility when it comes to matters concerning God. Let us not be too soon to stand up and say, this is what God said we ought to do. Let's be careful with that language. Boldness, yes, but boldness with humility. A balance that I think Daniel achieves and something Belshazzar does not. Now, you might not be inclined to think that this story from Daniel chapter 5 is a strongly theological story, but it is. Daniel 5, verse 1, King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. All right. How many stories from your life where you exhibited marginal discretion began at a party where you drank wine? It's rhetorical. Don't answer out loud. One thing that might not immediately stick out to you as you read these first few verses is how incongruous this was of Belshazzar to do for him to be throwing a party. But again, it speaks to the arrogance of a king who has blindly put his faith in warriors and in walls and in the gods of gold and wood and stone. You see, at the time of this party, Babylon was at war with the Medes, who were their former allies, and the Persians, and even as this party was underway and progressing, an army of Medes and Persians under the command of Darius the Mede had Babylon surrounded and under siege. But Belshazzar wasn't worried. You see, the city of Babylon 
was ringed by two sets of double walls. The outer walls, the outermost wall of the outer double set was 26 feet wide. The inner wall just inside of that outer double wall was itself 24 feet wide. And if your army did manage to get through those two barriers, then you had the inner walls and they were 22 and 12 feet wide themselves. You see, he wasn't worried. Plus, the siege was not really a problem. There was so much food in the city of Babylon that Darius's army on the outside was in greater risk of starvation than the people in the city were. So much food, in fact, that Belshazzar decided to celebrate the siege with a great banquet. But it would be during the banquet that Belshazzar would learn a lesson that the Philistines had learned long ago. Just because you defeated the Lord's people doesn't mean you defeated the Lord. Verse 2, while Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Can anyone here see why that might have been a bad idea? Don't ever, in your foolish arrogance, mess around with the holy things of God. Don't even do it. Verse 3, so they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines drank from them. As they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Just a quick aside on this, kind of interesting. You see the list of, of these things. Other than wood, that's basically the description of the, of the image in Daniel 2, right? The gold, the silver, the bronze, the iron, and then you had the clay and the iron, and then the stone at the end. Kind of interesting, that language would come back. Suddenly the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale and he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. You see, Belshazzar had made the same mistake that the Philistines had made all those years ago. Do you remember that story? It was during the days of Eli, the high priest, when Samuel was just a boy. And Israel was at war with the Philistines, and they weren't doing well. And so Eli's sons decided what we need to turn the tide here is we need a magic trinket. So they took the Ark of the Covenant and carried it into the camp and the people were sure, oh, we have the Ark now, God will make us win. The next day they went out to war and the Philistines defeated Israel. And the sons of Eli were killed and the Ark was left on the field. And the Philistines made a most unfortunate assumption. We have defeated Yahweh's people, therefore we must have defeated him. And so they took the ark and they carried it triumphantly back to their city. And if you remember the story, they put it in the temple of their God. And they went away for the night. And when they came back in the morning, their God was laid over in front of the ark. They thought it was strange, but they said accidents happen. So they put him back up. 
And they went home at the end of that day and they came in the next morning and he was down again, only this time his head had fallen off and it was laying on the thresholds. And not too long after that, tumors started appearing on the people and rats began to overrun the city. So they took the ark to another city and the same thing happened there. And they took it to another city and the same thing happened there. And they wanted to take it to another one and they said, no way, you're not bringing that here. So they put it on a cart and sent it back to God's people. Just because you defeated the Lord's people does not mean you've defeated the Lord. Belshazzar, in the arrogance of his theology, because that's what's actually on display here. You see, Belshazzar took the emblems, the the implements from the God of heaven and he used them for common drinking cups while praising his gods. In other words, saying, my gods are greater than the God of Israel. Belshazzar, in the arrogance of his theology, he takes the holy vessels, the ones dedicated to the Lord's service, and uses them as mere drinking cups. And while drinking from them, Belshazzar and his friends praise their gods. Can anyone say... Really bad idea? Yeah, really bad idea. And aside, I worry for those in the world who speak with arrogance against the God of heaven, exalting the gods of self or the gods of money or the gods of science above the God of heaven. I assume most of them do it out of ignorance. And I pray that God will be merciful to them as appropriate But if you get nothing else out of this story in Daniel, get this. One day God says enough to human arrogance and he puts an end to it. So don't be an arrogant blasphemer who thinks they know everything that God will and won't do. We must always be humble before the Lord. Verse 7, the king summoned the enchanters, astrologers, and diviners Then he said to these wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around his neck and he will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. It's actually kind of an interesting comment that Belshazzar makes here. Um, And in fact, one that until archaeologists actually uncovered evidence didn't really make any sense to us but in fact reveals a lost detail about the Babylonian Empire. You see, Belshazzar makes a unique promise. He says, I promise that you'll be the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Strange. Why third? Well, here's the reason. Belshazzar was actually a co-regent. There were two kings of Babylon at the time, and he was the lesser of the two. Nabonidus, Belshazzar's father, was the primary king. But Nabonidus was a strange man. And he didn't really like spending time in Babylon. So he spent most of his time in a city called Tema and left Belshazzar, his son, as the de facto king in Babylon. Therefore, Belshazzar could only promise the third highest place because first and second were already taken. 
So it's this little arcane fact that's preserved in the biblical text that history completely lost sight of until archaeology discovered scrolls that explained what was really going on there. Kind of an interesting point. So here's the question. If Babylon was at war with the Medes and the Persians, why wasn't the primary king in the city? Well, actually, it seems that there were two armies at that point advancing against Babylon, one under Darius the Mede and the under, other under Cyrus the Persian. Now, this Cyrus the Persian would be the one who would allow the people of Judah to return to the land of Israel into the city of Jerusalem and to begin to rebuild the temple. And this Cyrus would be the one that over 150 years before any of this happened, the prophet Isaiah would name as the one who would come to deliver the people. The prophecy was so shocking that it led scholars of a previous generation to say, well, this is so accurate, there's no way God could have told Isaiah that. Therefore, it had to have been written later. Well, that's a little bit of a circular reasoning, isn't it? It comes from Isaiah chapter 45, verse 1. It says, this is what the Lord says to his anointed to Cyrus. Now, just to add a little discomfort to all of this, we've been talking about how God takes a hold of these pagan kings and does great things with them. If you want to be really uncomfortable here, you know what that word anointed is in Hebrew? That's Messiah. How do you feel about that? God calls the pagan king his anointed one, his Messiah for this purpose. This is what the Lord says to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I take hold of to subdue nations before him and to strip kings of their armor and open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. I will go before you and will level the mountains. I will break down gates of bronze and cut through bars of iron. I will give you hidden treasures, riches stored in secret places, so that you may know that I am the Lord, the God of Israel, who summons you by name. For the sake of Jacob, my servant, of Israel, my chosen, I summon you by name and bestow on you a title of honor. Now catch this. Though you do not acknowledge me. The Lord took hold of Cyrus and cleared his path even though Cyrus did not know the name of the Lord. I am the Lord and there is no other. Apart from me there is no God. I will strengthen you though you have not acknowledged me so that from the rising of the sun to the place of its setting people may know there is none beside me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I will raise up Cyrus in my righteousness I will make all his ways straight. Now catch this. He will rebuild my city and set my exiles free, but not for a price or reward, says the Lord Almighty. If you get to the book of Ezra and you're reading in it, you will see that it is King Cyrus who allows the people to go back to Jerusalem and says to them, rebuild the temple and pay for it out of my treasury. It happened just like Isaiah said it would. So apparently this is how it all went. Darius the Mede is besieging Babylon while Cyrus with his Persian army is advancing on Babylon from the east. 
So Belshazzar, as usual, is holding down the fort in Babylon on the Euphrates River while Nabonidus has taken an army out of Babylon to go meet Cyrus by the Tigris River. Two battles will take place and both Babylonian kings will lose. Nabonidus just two days before Belshazzar. You see, when God has decreed his purpose, no walls, no warriors, no castles, no kings, nothing on earth can thwart God's plan. And his judgment upon the arrogant can come particularly swiftly. Back to the night of the feast, the night that was fun but now has been ruined by that hand that wrote on the wall. Verse 8, then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or tell the king what it meant. So King Belshazzar became even more terrified and his face grew more pale. His nobles were baffled. The queen, hearing the voices of the king and his nobles, came into the banquet hall. May the king live forever, she said. Don't be alarmed. Don't look so pale. There is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. Your father, King Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him chief of the, mag of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. He did this because Daniel, whom the king called Belteshazzar, was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding, and also the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel, and he will tell you what the writing means. There's a lot of interesting parallels here between this story and that of Daniel chapter 2 with Nebuchadnezzar's dream. I don't know if you noticed this, but in both cases, you have wise men that are baffled. They can't answer the king's question. And in both cases, you have a king that becomes even more emotionally intense as a result. Nebuchadnezzar became more angry. Belshazzar becomes more afraid. And then echoing language from other places in Daniel, someone then comes to the king with word and says, there is one named Daniel who the spirit of the holy gods is in him. You remember that phrase? It's interesting that the one that brings this suggestion about Daniel is identified as the queen. Now it's impossible to know for sure who this wise woman was. But some have thought that she, in fact, was the queen mother and that she, in fact, was the daughter of Nebuchadnezzar. That Nabonidus was not actually Nebuchadnezzar's son. Rather, he had married the queen's daughter, making Belshazzar uh, Nebuchadnezzar's grandson. If this is, in fact, who she was, then she would very well know all about Daniel, having been there for the story of her father. Verse 13, so Daniel was brought before the king and the king said to him, are you Daniel, one of the exiles my father the king brought from Judah? I have heard that the spirit of the gods is in you and that you have insight, intelligence, and outstanding wisdom. <coughs> the wise men and enchanters were brought before me to read this writing and tell me what it means, but they could not explain it. Now I have heard that you are able to give interpretations and to solve difficult problems. If you can read this writing and tell me what it means, 
You will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around your neck and you will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. So I don't know how over time Daniel's fame had seemingly fallen off, but you know, I guess new king, new people, and I guess Daniel just didn't make the new list. He was one of the old guys now. You know, and, and I suppose if you were Daniel, you probably thought, well, I guess my days of my role in government, I guess that's over. But here's the thing. We are never finished in any work for the Lord until the Lord says we're finished. Daniel may have been passed over by the new king, but the Lord's work for Daniel was not finished. Verse 17 then Daniel answered the king, you may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read, what, read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. Now, it's possible that Daniel says this about the king keeping his rewards to himself because Daniel knows that in a few hours this kingdom is going to fall and there's going to be new people there and being third in the kingdom isn't necessarily what you want to be when the city's falling. In fact, pretend you don't even know me. Yeah. It's possible, but I suspect Daniel would have said that to the king regardless. Simply because I believe there finally comes a point in the life of a faithful, God-honoring man or woman when he or she realizes that earthly power, earthly wealth, and earthly authority just aren't that important. Faithfulness to the call of God is what matters. Jesus said it this way, seek first the kingdom of God. And if you need these things, they'll be added. But now it's lecture time for young King Belshazzar. And in this lecture, perhaps we see why it was that God loved Nebuchadnezzar, but not so much Belshazzar. Verse 18, your majesty, the most high God, gave your father Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. Because of the high position he gave him, all the nations and peoples of every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. And those he wanted to humble, he humbled. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from people and given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like the ox, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and sets over them anyone he wishes." But you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets of his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles, your wives, and your concubines drank wine from them. You praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honor the God who holds in his hands your life and all your ways. Therefore, he sent the hand that wrote the inscription. 
And so I got to that point in the text and I, I started to think, boy, that was dumb when you knew better to do that. But then the Lord put something else on my heart. Do we ever arrogantly forget that it is God who holds our lives in his hands? Do we ever figuratively drink wine from his sacred vessels? Is this what we do when we withhold our tithes and offerings? The Lord calls those holy. Or when we speak rashly against servants of the Lord, I know I've done that. Is this what we do when we use the same mouth to sing praises to the Lord here at church and then go out and curse our neighbor? When we unite our bodies in acts of sexuality outside of God's intent, do we not figuratively drink wine from sacred vessels? Young men, the young women are sacred vessels. Do not arrogantly use them. Young women, the young men are called by God to service. Do not provoke them and do not lead them astray. Do not drink wine from sacred vessels. Instead, let us all humble ourselves before the God who holds our lives in his hands. Verse 25, this is the inscription that was written, Mini, mini, tekel, parson. Here's what these words mean. Mini, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel. You have been weighed in the scales and found wanting. Paris, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. The reason this wasn't immediately obvious is because each of these words could have more than one meaning. Mene could mean numbered or mina. Tekel could mean weighed or shekel, a unit of money. Paris could mean divided or Persia or half mina or half shekel. See, it wasn't immediately obvious. It took someone like Daniel to explain it. But once he did, the message was crystal clear. And Belshazzar knew it. Verse 29, then at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple. A gold chain was placed around his neck and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. The epilogue of the story, that very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain, and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. All right, I don't really have time to tell you the amazing way that Jeremiah chapter 51 explains how Babylon fell. You see, Jeremiah gave a prophecy around the time that King Zedekiah was taken from the throne and taken to Babylon. He sent a message and he had it read to the people there and then thrown in the river. And this message explained how the city of Babylon would fall. I challenge you to read Isaiah 51 the chapter later today. But just to tell you briefly how it all happened, 
You see, there was no way to get through the walls. So Darius came up with a new plan to go under them. You see, the Euphrates River flowed through a portion of the city. And so while his army was around the city, he took another section of his army upstream and diverted the flow of the river. And by diverting the river, the level of the river fell to a point where the men were able to get forward. And, and whether there was some treachery on the inside involved or just they were just careless, they managed to get through the only defense that the river had and filled the city before anybody even knew they were there. Jeremiah would explain what would happen 50 years before it happened. And he talks about how it will be the Medes that do it. Belshazzar learned the hard way that when God decrees the end, no walls, no warriors, no castles, no kings will save you if God has decreed the end. God remains sovereign no matter who is on the throne or the size of their army or the width of their walls. And God will see to it that all his purposes are accomplished. He will even take pagan kings who don't acknowledge him by the hand and lead them where he wants them to go. And then he will bring them down when their time is done. So why would we put our faith in anything but the God in heaven? Why would we look to anything to save us except the Savior he has appointed, Jesus Christ? Why would we be even partially committed to anything except the Most High God and his purpose in our lives? The Adventist hymn writer Frank Belden had it right. And this will be our song. We will sing at the close, but let it also be words of consecration in our hearts. I would be, dear Savior, holy thine. Teach me how. Teach me how. I would do thy will, O Lord, not mine. Help me. Help me now. Holy thine. Holy thine. Holy thine, this is my vow. Holy thine, holy thine, holy thine, O Lord, just now. Let us not be arrogant before the Lord, but always be humble and wholly committed to our Most High God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, forgive us for our arrogance when we have claimed to know everything that you should do and ought to do, and when we have not come humbly before you. Lord, forgive us if we've arrogantly drunk wine from holy vessels. Forgive us for this sin. We would be wholly yours. Teach us how. In Jesus' name, amen.